this, he breathed his last. They did deserve a round of applause after that extreme reading exercise. Um, but I wanted to just say a very special welcome to the kids. Kids, I don't know if you know, but there's a, a, one main difference between adults and children. And the first one is that children can do something and listen to someone speaking, and adults are not that good at doing that, really. <laughs> So, it's the, the kids that feel like they can do something and listen at the same time, you guys are welcome to stay in this room. But if, like my children at the front here, who are making this noise that you can all hear, um, <laughs> you guys, if you want to draw and be able to kind of half listen to Raj through these doors, I'm going to be standing through here. And any parents who would like to join me or send their children just to draw through here, and we can maybe lower the noise level slightly in here, I'm going to be stepping out now, and anyone is welcome to follow me. Otherwise, over to you. Great. Good None morning, of them everybody. Heard me, so maybe their parents can yeah. tap them on the shoulder. Yeah, so maybe parents, if you could just keep an eye on your kids, we're going to try to keep this as short as we possibly can. Um, but we are going to try our best to immerse ourselves in the story of Good Friday. And. Um, I want to give these guys a little gap to do what they need to do. We love you guys. It's mainly for me, I think. Is this thing on? can hardly hear myself. You, is it good up there? I used to be better at multitasking and speaking whilst there was chaos going on. And in my late 30s, I have become... Single focused. Has anybody ever watched the movie Murder on the Orient Express? Put your hand up if you've watched it. The bad news for you today, if you haven't watched it, is that I'm going to spoil the, out the outcome of the movie. However, it was first made in 1937. So you have had, um, I think, about 88 years or 85 years to watch it and to find out the storyline. So if you haven't done it by now, it's too late anyway. But there is a famous investigator by the name of Poirot. Am I saying it right? Poirot? Practice that. Who's got some French in them? Say Poirot. Oh, feels good, eh? Poirot. And um, he is on this train. And on this train, a terrible crime happens. No guessing what the crime is, uh, given the, the, the title of this movie. And Poirot happens to be on this train, and he spends the rest of the movie trying to work out which of these 12 people who are suspects committed this grievous and terrible crime. And much of the movie is really on the edge of your seat watching, and it's, it's half comedy but half uh, intense as you're doing everything you can to work out who did it. It's a classic whodunit, and you're watching, and he introduces you to the different characters, and each time you go, oh, it has to be this person. And then you meet another person, you go, no, it's definitely them. And as you find yourself going through the characters, you find yourself going, I have no idea until... I'll tell you what happens in a moment. But as we read this, and I hope you could 
stick with me through the chaos and the noise of what was happening in the front row, we read a story where we were introduced to a whole bunch of characters. No doubt if you're here on Good Friday, you know that this is the story of uh, Jesus being crucified on a cross. But the massive question, much like Poirot was asking, is who did it? Why did it happen? Who were the main participants? What, uh, who were the great contributors? And so I want to introduce you to all the characters that we met over all those verses in Luke chapter 23. And we're going to try our best to go, who done it? Who was it? Firstly, let's meet Pilate. Pilate, he was the, the, the governor. He was the Roman governor over Jerusalem at the time, and he was the authority. He was like the mayor. He was the guy who got to make the big decisions in that city. He was powerful. Was it Pilate? You see, interestingly, Pilate was what I would call a people pleaser. In verse 13, we're introduced to him, but a little further down in verse 24, after Pilate has been listening to the different opinions, Pilate has had a very harrowing and terrifying experience. It seems like a night or two before his wife has a dream, and in that dream, she becomes very terrified of the thought that, we, he, that, that, that they would have anything to do with Jesus being harmed. And he knows about this, and his wife tells him. And so Pilate is so desperate to not send Jesus to the cross. He doesn't want him crucified. But what's interesting is that as Pilate is looking out over the crowds, he keeps going, why do you want to crucify this man? And he goes away, and he comes back. He says, one more time, why? What has he done? I find no charge against him. But amazingly, Pilate, like many times in my own life, he looks over the crowd, and the crowd are saying, we want him crucified. And Pilate, because he wants to be liked, because everything in his head and his heart is saying, I shouldn't crucify him. His mouth says, okay, you can do it. He has this desire to please people. Why? Because if he pleases people, he maintains his position. He maintains what he needs in his life. He, he keeps what he wants. You see, Pilate was a kind of people pleaser. Now, let me keep introducing you to this amazing cast. Then we've got the chief priests. The very uh, high priest at the time was a guy by the name of Caiaphas. And the chief priests, although they were very Jewish and they stood up for Jewish law and they did everything they could to maintain uh, their Jewishness, they were a little bit like chameleons. Anyone know what a chameleon does? Kids, you know what a chameleon does? A chameleon is amazing at adopting to, the, adapting to different places that it is. If it's, on a, if it's on a green leaf, it begins to look like a green leaf. It gets onto a brown branch, it turns into a brown branch. The, the chief priests were very similar. You see, the chief priests were these people who were uh, essentially trying to keep the Jewish people doing Jewish stuff as Jewish as they possibly could. However, they weren't really in charge. And so what they needed to do was to make sure the Jewish people behaved in a way that, was, uh, that kept Jewish people feeling Jewish, but kept the Roman rulers happy that they weren't being too rebellious and Jewish. And so these chief priests basically stood in the middle as these kind of mediators, not between God and the people, but between the people and the Romans. And so they didn't want any naughty Jewish people coming in and causing any trouble in the city because they were the ones who stood in the middle and the Romans would say, why are your people doing this? What's going on? And they received a healthy little reward for making sure that the Jewish people stayed Jewish but weren't naughty Jews. 
And so these chief priests, although they were, uh, they were in a high standing in Jewish society, they were like chameleons. Before the Jewish people, they were respectable Jewish priests. Before the Romans, they were subservient people who went, how can we serve you? And they lived in amazing luxury and comfort. Hey, I don't know about you, but for me, I've had times in my life where it's been very convenient to be a kind of chameleon. In a certain group of people, you find yourself laughing at jokes you would never laugh at if you were with other group of people. You find yourself maybe in a group or a crowd where you're with your colleagues at work and suddenly you're behaving in a different way or with old school friends or whatever it may be and suddenly you're finding yourself going, I'm a bit of a chameleon myself. The chief priests were like this. They, they were moving and adapting however it was convenient for the outcome of what they wanted. There's the people-pleasing Pilate. There's the chameleon chief priest. And then there is Herod, who is just plain old heartless Herod. Herod gets Jesus sent to him by Pilate because Pilate's going, you know what? I don't want anything to do with this guy. I don't know how to judge him. It's too confusing. Everything in front of me says this guy's innocent. Luke, who's the author, is doing his best to help you to see that Jesus really was innocent. He keeps showing how there's nothing to prove. There's nothing against Jesus. There is no case against him to give him the death sentence, not to mention any criminal sentence. And when he gets to Herod, Herod asks him questions. He's interested because Herod is, is the true king of the, the, the empire around Israel. And Herod looks at him, and he's interested, and he has a long chat with him. But Herod simply doesn't see any reason why he would want to keep Jesus alive. It was not in his own interests. And so Herod is this heartless guy who goes, it's inconvenient. Although Jesus is interesting, although he is fascinating to talk to, there is no benefit for me to do anything that will benefit him. The only thing I can do is to make sure that my power remains in my world. And so he just sends him back to Pontius Pilate. And he goes, this is your problem. He treats Jesus like a hot potato. He juggles him for a while, has an interesting chat, and sends him back. Basically going, if it's not convenient for me, if it makes my life a little awkward, I don't want to have anything to do with it. Hey, we might look at Herod and go, he is awful. But actually, in many ways in our own lives, we too can sometimes go, you know what? This is just too awkward of a conversation. This is too difficult of a thing. I don't want to look at our past. I don't want to face our history. I don't want to face these difficult realities. So we just pretend it never happened and our hearts can grow cold. Then there's the crowd, what I would call the critical crowd. They shout, away with this man. Release Barabbas to us. Barabbas was a guy who actually was a convicted criminal. He had started an insurrection and he had murdered someone. He's the kind of guy who in Roman times should probably have actually got the sentence of the crucifixion, at least in comparison to Jesus. And yet the crowd get carried away. Sounds familiar, right? Been on social media lately? Just hashtag vaccination. Hashtag liberal. Hashtag woke, 
Hashtag almost anything and you will find a crowd who will cancel, who will shout away with, end this thing. Hashtag a different political party and you will find the heat is flying all over your screen because we are a people who can get caught up in a crowd, who can find ourselves going, I don't, I hate, I won't. And we become very opinionated depending on what evidence we've been brought our way. And we might say, how could that crowd have gotten so caught up in that? And yet if I say some more hashtags, you might find yourself feeling like you've also gotten a little wound up around a few things, right? We can get wound up. We can get caught up. Hey, then there's just these common criminals. These common criminals. Two other men, both criminals, were also led out with him to be executed. Fair to say that actually amongst... Every society, we just make mistakes in life. These guys had made honest mistakes. They had done stuff they wished they hadn't done, no doubt. And now they are facing the penalty of their crime. But what about in verse 35? We met a group of people. The people stood watching. Those people I would call the passive people. They simply just stood at a distance because they knew in part they were powerless against the Romans and in part maybe because they were terrified. I'd call them the passive people because they simply didn't get too engaged. They just stood watching. I wonder how many of those people we don't hear about in the story, how many of them sat at home and went, oof, I've heard, I saw on Twitter, it's not looking good for that guy, Jesus. Remember, who's Jesus? Remember that guy who fed us on the mountain? He only had a few loaves and a couple of fish, and he, and he fed us? That amazing miracle. Remember they said he healed uh, Auntie so-and-so? She had that, that lame leg, and then she, he got healed? That guy, he was powerful. You know, Jesus of Nazareth, he's on the cross. I've just seen on Twitter. Oh, but Master Chef's on. It's such a good one. It's the finale. I can't, I can't, I can't, just don't tell me the bad news now. There's too much going on. It's the, it's the final of the, the, the rugby, the curry cup, whatever it is. I've, I've got stuff to do. I can't have this. Passively just went, oh boy, I hope he's okay. All the soldiers. What about these soldiers? They also came up and mocked him. Now, I actually think of these soldiers, and sometimes you think of a soldier and you think brave and tough and, and courageous, but actually, I would put, put it to you that these are scared soldiers. Anyone who's been in an all-boys school or who's been in the army will know that uh, the more you're surrounded by testosterone, the braver people look and the more terrified they are on the inside. It looks like a whole bunch of bravado, but inside it's kind of going, if I don't do it, I'll look like a coward. So I have to do it. So I have to play the sport. So I have to do that. So I have to do what they're doing. But everything in me doesn't want to do it. It's the, they made me do it theme. It's the theme of, they were all doing it, so we went along with it. And actually, deep down, it's the corporate culture theme that goes, I had to do it because I had to keep my job. I didn't want to lose my job. I didn't want to lose favor with the, the person over me. These soldiers are doing it because they're caught up in a culture that simply says, I can beat them. I can do more. I can be more courageous. It's actually amazing if you mock and spit and, and, and treat a person awfully. That's what happens in, in gruesome corporate cultures like the Roman Empire. 
We could get caught up in these cultures, even ourselves. The boss made me do it. If I didn't, I would have lost my job. The corporate culture I'm in means that if you don't compromise here and there, you're out. Actually, inside, there's not bravado. There's not courage. This isn't strength. This is fear. And then the final people I want to introduce you to is the denying and the distant disciples. It says, they stood at a distance watching. Those who knew him, those who had walked with him, stood at a distance watching. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not trying to paint them all in this terrible light like they are the worst people ever. I don't know if we would have, I know I wouldn't have been any better. I don't know if I would have been that gruesome soldier or if I would have been like Pilate who just wanted people to like me. But I know that even the disciples, Peter himself is, is written just a, a few verses before as a little girl, just like one walking up the stage now, comes and says, you knew him. And he goes, I, I tell you, I, I did, I've, I'd, I've never met him. A big, brave disciple who's lived his life out in the wild open seas, looks at a little servant girl and says, I never knew him. He's afraid and he distanced himself and he denies how many of us have maybe just felt the temptation to distance ourselves when Jesus is getting a bad rap? When the Bible is being taken on by some hardcore atheist and you go, oh, I don't know what to say. I wish I could just shrivel up and move out of the room. We've all felt that sense of, I just want to distance myself whilst this thing is happening. These are people just like us. And today on this Good Friday, it's a combination of bad news and good news. The bad news is like Inspector Poirot experienced on the Orient Express, is that as the movie begins to move to its crescendo, he stands up and he looks and he, he unpacks the whole story and he talks about each of these people and he talks about the people pleasers and he talks about the chief priests and he talks about the heartless Herod and he describes everyone on the train and then he says, you know what? They all did it. They all had a reason. And they all conspired to kill this person. It was an amazing, it's an amazing movie. As suddenly they all look and they go, he's right. And if you get into and you read about the backstory and why they conspired to do this. Here's the thing about the scriptures. Is that it teaches exactly the same thing. Whether a people pleaser, a chameleon, a heartless uh, kind of person, a critical, common, a criminal, a sedated citizen, a scared soldier, a denying or a distant disciple, all of those are reasons why Jesus joyfully and willingly and yet painfully and sacrificially went to the cross. I want to suggest to you today that he did it on our behalf. He did it for us. I think of this beautiful passage where it says in verse 23, but loud shouts, with loud shouts, they demanded that he be crucified, and their shouts prevailed, so Pilate decided to grant their demand. Eventually, the people pleaser gives in. He released the man who'd been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder, the one they asked for, and surrendered Jesus to their will. Theologians call this the great exchange, the incredible moment where a sinful man is given up for a sinless man, where the people pleaser and the, 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 the chameleon and the person who so badly just is terrified inside and doesn't do the right thing, whatever it may be, is traded for the sinless one and is put on the cross. 
He didn't just do it for these few people on the screen. Maybe we can go to that next slide. He did it for all of us who attempted sometimes to please people, who tempted to be chameleons when it's convenient to us. He did it for all who sometimes just have a heartless desire to stay at a distance and pretend it's not happening. He did it for the critical who tend to always find the glass half empty, always complaining, always seeing the issues with society. He did it for the common criminal, for the citizen who simply goes, I've got more better things to do with my life. It's on Good Friday that he looks at us and he provides three profound and beautiful things to each of our souls. Firstly, he provides forgiveness. He provides forgiveness. In verse 34, over this crazed crowd, over this group of people who all allowed him to go gruesomely to the cross, he shouts out in a loud voice, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they are doing. I pray today that you let that sink in. I pray today that if even one of these remotely connects with you, that something of the glory and the kindness of Jesus who would look over you and I and say, forgive them, forgive them. One of the most remarkable parts of the gospel is that we are forgiven. It's terrifying, by the way. It's a terrifying cry as Jesus shouts over humanity and he says, forgive them. Why is it terrifying? Because it leaves humanity with no excuse. There is a free offer of forgiveness for every human being who lives and walks on the face of this earth to say, yes, I receive it. He looks over his, the, the lives of every human being and he says, you can be forgiven. Come to me. He was lifted up so that we could find forgiveness. In the moment of his deepest pain, in his greatest betrayal, there is nothing and no one that I know who could pull that kind of grace out. As fists of hostility are being shaken at him, he moves towards humanity with a kiss of grace. Wow. The second beautiful gift of Good Friday is the gift of God's presence. He gave us his presence that very day. I don't know if you picked it up in verse 44. It was about noon and darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. For the sun stopped shining. Notice when the Son of God dies, all creation is affected. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two. This is not a strong southeaster that blew through and ripped the veranda shade off. This was the very work of God. The temple curtain was that which symbolized God's very present, being between humanity and himself. And in a profound and powerful moment, the temple curtain is torn in two so that every human being who would come to Jesus for forgiveness gets more than they bargained for. They get the very presence of God in them, with them, and able to enjoy his presence. This is a power moment. How are you doing and enjoying the presence of God today? Yes, it's dark. It's a day where Jesus had to go to the cross so that he could save us, but it is bright because it's the very day the curtain is torn in two and provides us love and life, his very presence. And thirdly and finally, we get a king. We get a king. Notice how it says in various places, but in verse 38, there was written a notice above him which read, this is the king of the Jews. 
The world is looking for a leader, desperately. It, 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 it's unstoppable. There is the search for the perfect leader. We complain about the new leadership in all different parts. We, we celebrate when we see one Ukrainian president do one thing well, and we go, wow. Friends, the best leadership we'll ever see was expressed in Jesus Christ on the cross. He turned the world of leadership upside down. Go to a study on the word humility. The word humility basically didn't exist until Jesus came on the cross and he died. And the word was introduced to humanity, humilitas. It means that there is a provision of love. It means there's a provision of kingship. There's a provision of leadership. You see, what happened on the cross was that this powerful crown of thorns was stuck into his skull. It's a remarkable moment. A paradox. Anyone know what a paradox is? A paradox is when you basically, you think one thing's happening, but the exact opposite is happening. You think he's being mocked. How could he possibly be the king of the Jews? There's no ways he's a king. He's dying on a cross. But in the heavenly realms, the exact opposite was happening. He was receiving the crown that said he is heaven and earth's true king. And he's done everything requisite to stand and, uh, as a king, to sit on the throne and be enthroned as heaven and earth's true king. He got the crown. The question is, is who are we bowing to today? Maybe you want to just reflect as we call the band up. People pleaser, chameleon, just crazed crowd. Common criminal, sedate, scared, maybe just denying and distant. I don't know. I'm not sure where you find yourself in this season of life. The beauty is that on the cross on Good Friday, Jesus looked over every single one. And he said, Father, forgive them. And the temple curtain was torn in two and the presence was available to all. And he said, and we see in hindsight, thankfully, that he is the king, and that there is a king who wants to lead you and who wants to lead us, and he's turned the world upside down. The first will be last, the least will become the greatest, and we get to celebrate that today, this Good Friday. It's Good Friday because, in part, we're all a little like this group of people, but equally we're all loved, forgiven, and invited into the presence of the king. Heaven and earth's true king. Let's stand. Father, this morning, we are content to wait a little. We're content to wait on the fact that the cross was necessary. There's no way for people pleasers to be forgiven unless the cross happened. There's no way for us to be forgiven from our apathy. There's no way for us to be forgiven from our distancing or our, our lack of interest in you, but to come to you and receive your forgiveness. There's no way into your presence except that you would die on our behalf. There's no way to be loved by a true king of great sacrifice unless we come to you. And so today, we do just that. And we use today, we use Friday and we use Saturday 
to wait, to wait with you, to not rush ahead, to not say we need it all, we need the new life, we need everything fixed. We wait with you because you waited for us. Jesus, we know Sunday is coming. And we're so grateful Sunday is coming. We will find an empty tomb. But today we choose not to rush ahead to the empty tomb. Today we choose by faith and with the help of your spirit to recognize your powerful sacrifice, your amazing love and your glorious victory. And you needed to do that because of us, because of what lives inside of us. And I pray today that we would realize that we're more sinful than we first thought. And at the same time, we're more loved than we ever dreamt. And God, that that would humble us to the dust, but it would affirm us to the stars. And that we would live in that tension of humility and deep confidence. Thank you for everything you've done. In Jesus' name.